Well, we're going to probably start in Genesis. Uh, well, we will start in Genesis chapter 1. So if you guys want to turn over there, um, I'm just going to pray for us as we get started, and then we will, we will walk through Scripture together. Lord, thank you for uh, this time uh, to gather in worship, uh, to gather in remembrance, to gather in uh, corporate longing and anticipation um, for your second advent, uh, which your first advent points to. And Lord, we, uh, as your people, uh, long for the day of the culmination of all your promises, uh, which have been uh, already confirmed uh, in Christ Jesus. And now as we look into scripture to see those truths, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? all that you have revealed in your word. Pray this in your name. Amen. Okay. So uh, before we get started, uh, there's so many scriptures that we can look at in terms of getting into Advent-themed scriptures, things that talk about the coming of Jesus and what his coming will be like and what the Messiah is to be like and who is this Jesus, um, that we have to pick at least one dominant thing to emphasize if we're going to look at that in a kind of coherent fashion throughout the Old Testament. And because I think there's a lot of confusion around the idea of what Jesus is as a king, I think that's the, the dominant idea I want to look at as we look through the Old Testament text. So as you think about this today, and you think about what does it mean for, for one person to rule over all of something, in our society, we typically think about that as a bad thing, right? If one person's in charge, uh, that's a dictatorship, that's a, uh, that's a bad system of government because we think about that inherently in regards of sinful humanity. A sinful person running the show is a very bad thing for everyone else who's under their authority, under their leadership. And scripture tells us about Jesus primarily as a king who's going to be the ruler, the sole ruler of all of the cosmos, all of God's creation. And as we think about, well, what is Jesus like? What does his kingship mean? I think it's important for us to realize that even as Christians who've, who've grown up in a culture that Kind of, kind of suppresses the idea of him being a king and magnifies the idea of him being a savior, uh, we've ended up with this theology uh, of Christ that basically says, well, Jesus will save me from my sins, but that does not necessarily mean I any, any kind of allegiance to him on the back end. He'll, he'll save me from my junk, but then uh, that doesn't mean I should follow him or, or swear allegiance to him, right? Um, whereas the, Paul would say in the New Testament, Romans chapter 10, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts, God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. So salvation is a confession of lordship, a submission to him as Lord. Paul's primary identifying factor when he's writing his letters is he is a slave of Christ, a servant of his, of his master. So I think that's an idea we need to recapture. But I don't want to recapture that from some modern rejection of our modern conception of kingship. I think we just need to look at the biblical account and see what does it tell us about who Jesus is going to be so that when he arrives on the scene, we can see these themes kind of come out into, into full, full bloom. Now, I want to draw your eye uh, to a couple of things you're going to hear when we sing together in worship, uh, a couple of lines. And in each of these songs, you'll notice they describe Jesus in terms of his royal majesty. For instance, if you look at uh, just a couple of these lines, in Joy to the World, the second line says, let earth receive her king. So the, in Joy to the World, the thing that the earth is rejoicing over is that the king is coming. And scripture tells us what that king is like. My, my point is, as Christians, we worship Christ as king and as the coming king in the time of Advent. In Angels We Have Heard on High, uh, they sing, uh, and, and the line is, uh, Christ the Lord, the newborn king. Right? It's in verse 3, come adore on bended knee, Christ the Lord, the newborn king. And so when we are we're talking about what the angels announce, they announce the coming of a king. That's their primary coming. They don't come to announce a savior, although salvation is his work. 
They come to announce a king, and through his kingship is how he saves. And then the last one is Silent Night. Uh, you might think that there's no way this one talks about Jesus as king. It's very uh, muted and very reserved uh, song. But uh, in the last two lines of the song, it's a repetition. It says, Jesus is Lord at thy birth. Jesus is Lord at his birth. So when he comes in the incarnation, he is Lord at that time. Well, his lordship is the dominant way in which he interacts with his world and with his, his people. And I want us to see that not only as we sing that in worship to key our eyes into that, but also as the biblical account talks about it. So let's talk about what God's plan for creation is and then, and then how this develops into this idea of a long-awaited king. So in Genesis chapter 1, I had you turn there a while ago, uh, we're going to be looking at a couple of verses. We're going to be kind of taking a survey through Genesis. So Genesis 1, verse 26, God creates man. Then God said, let us make men in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God's design for man is that they would rule and have dominion over God's creation that he has just finished making. And then verse 27, it's, a, it's an often missed transitional term. What does it mean to be made in the likeness of God? What does it mean to be made in his image? He just said they're going to have dominion and authority. And then he says, verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And what does God tell the man? And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over every fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with its seed in its fruit. And you will have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, including man's dominion over the world. And behold, it was very good. And it was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So when God creates man, he places him in a garden. He doesn't place him there to do nothing in the garden. He places him in the garden to be the chief arbiter of God's rule in the garden. So man's design, man and woman's design, is to be co-rulers with God over his creation. They're his ambassadors on earth. This is what it means to be made in the image of God. This is why other animals don't have this unique function that is uniquely given to man. So God creates man with a design to have dominion. Well, as we know in Genesis chapter 3, if you want to flip there, man falls, man is tempted by the serpent, and man is, as a consequence of their temptation, suffering under the curse of God. And the, the culmination of that curse we see in verse 23 of Genesis 3. Therefore, because of man's fall, the Lord God set him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned, away, that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. So man is cast out of the garden as their punishment, which means they're also, uh, as, you, as you see all the curses, man is, man is put under the subjugation of creation, which they were first meant to subdue. So they're, they're in some sense not fulfilling their role because they were actually uh, subjects of the creature, right? The serpent is part of God's creation. Man was a subject to the serpent, and thus man is now cursed to be subjects to God's creation. But God still has a plan to redeem humanity back to its original state. And Genesis tells this story uh, throughout the lineage. So the first person we bump into is in Genesis chapter 6, and it's a guy named Noah. And he is the man who answers the problem that is introduced to us in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Genesis 6, 5. 
the Lord saw that wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's hard to get more active verbal engagement with sin than that sentence, right? Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. (laughs) And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it was grieved from his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of heavens. So he's going to destroy his creation. Verse eight, but Noah found favor in the eyes of God. So now there's a redeeming aspect to Noah's, uh, to Noah's call. And you'll notice this because once Noah is saved from the flood, he's preserved by God, and they land in, uh, in the mountain after the, the time of the flood. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on ground and all of the fish on the sea. Unto your hand they are now delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So when Noah is put back into a a newly cleansed creation, God gives him the same commission he gave Adam in the beginning. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And then essentially gives him dominion post-fall over all the creation. He will put the fear of God into these animals that they will fear man. They will be subject to man. Now, this is Noah's commission. So now we have a a note of hope, right? Uh, But uh, Noah does not fulfill this commission, right? This commission, which is repeated not only in verse 1, but also in verse 7, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. This is Noah's job. But what happens with Noah is he falls short of God's design, much like Adam did. And thus the question still lingers, okay, will, will humanity ever be able to be restored? The ultimate culmination of Noah's rebellion is seen in his descendants in the Tower of Babel, where they all come together in a massive rebellion against God. In Genesis 11 and verse 9, God disperses man by confusing their languages. And then the specific line I want you to pay attention to, Genesis 11 verse 9. And the Lord from there had dispersed them over all the face of the earth. It's the very end of verse 9. So what is that like? Well, that's just like what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden. They sin, they fall short, they are cast out of the garden. Noah is put back into creation with dominion, with the same command. Noah and his descendants all sin, and thus they are cast back out, dispersed. They're de-unified, cast out, and spread over the face of the earth. So they're no longer able to do the thing they were called to do, which is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They're kind of spread as wanderers throughout the earth. So that's the, the story as we have it there for, that thus far. But then in Genesis 12, we bump into Abraham. And Genesis 12, verse 1 tells us about this man. Now the Lord said to Abram, we know I, I use his, his promise name more than I use his, his first name. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. So God's going to give Abram a land. Verse 2, and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So it's through Abram, through his lineage, that all of the families of the earth are going to be redeemed, be saved. So it's through Abram's line that that's going to happen. But more explicitly in Genesis 15, where we meet Abram again, verse 7. I know we're skipping through. We're going to be doing this all throughout Genesis. Genesis 15, verse 7, God comes back again to Abram, essentially re-ups that same promise. 
And in verse 7, he tells him again, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So man was initially scattered. Then God takes Abram as a unique man and says, I'm going to put you in this land. And this land is going to be a type or a picture of my rule and reign over all the earth. So first it was Adam in the garden. Then it was Noah in the newly cleansed creation. And now it's Abram in a specific plot of land that is defined as being, well, the promised land to Abram. And then verse 17 is probably the most Abraham, uh, that, that's the most Adamic-like promise to Abraham. So this is Genesis 17, and it's verses just 1 through 8. I'm going to read that whole section. This is Abraham uh, after he's walked with God for a period of time. Genesis 17, verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Notice the same language that God says to Adam. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and to you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Verse six, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after the land of your sojournings, all of the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So notice the language that is initially promised to Adam, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Noah, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. To Abram, it is promised I will make you a nation that will be fruitful, that will multiply, and from your nation, from your lineage, will come kings who will dominate the land, who will rule it. They will be rulers over the other nations. So Abram is a picture or a type of the one who is redeemed as to be the, the ambassador of God to the rest of the world. And that takes us to Genesis 26, which is the first son of Abram. Uh, and he is given a remarkably similar commission to Abraham. Genesis 26, and I'm just going to be reading from verse 4 because it's the language that is most, uh, most cohesive with what we're, what we're looking at. Verse 4, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and I will give you offspring from all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So this is God talking to Abram's son Isaac, and to Abram's son, he gives the same commission he gives to Abraham, namely that they will multiply, they will fill the earth, and it is through them that the world will be blessed. So from Abraham, it, flow, it flows to Isaac. From Isaac, it's going to flow to Jacob. And you see that in verse or sorry, Genesis chapter 27, verse 28 and 29. Uh, the situation, by the way, surrounding this blessing is a little bit dubious. And if you are curious about how this exactly counts, uh, we can talk about that. But nevertheless, what happens is through deception, Jacob gains the blessing that Isaac is going to give to his eldest son, Esau. And when uh, Isaac blesses Jacob, this is what he says, verse 26, may God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and the plenty of grain and of wine. Verse 29, let all the people serve you and let the nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's son bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. That language is remarkably similar to the promise that God gives to you first to Abraham. Everyone who blesses you, I will bless. Everyone who curses you, I will curse. And also the language of being fruitful and multiply. Isaac essentially tells Jacob, via this deception blessing, 
that all the peoples would serve him, that all the nations should bow down to him, and that he uniquely would be Lord over all of his brothers. So he's set apart as a unique sibling over and above Esau and the other sons of that family. So Isaac uh, blesses Jacob, and through Jacob, you'll know this, that Jacob has 12 sons, and at the end of the book of Genesis, there's all this drama that surrounds it, but at the end of the book of Genesis, in Genesis 49, Jacob gives a blessing right to each of his children, and in Genesis 49, we're just going to look at one of the children that he blesses, because it continues this lineage of blessing that we've been kind of walking through. And this is Genesis 49. I'll be reading from verse, uh, starting in verse 8. He says to Judah, Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. That's uh, a Hebrew way of saying you will be over them. You will rule over them. Your father's sons will bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. And from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He has stooped down. He couched as, crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares to rouse him. Now, verse 10 is the one you want to pay attention to. The scepter, which is the way in which a king would rule, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor will the ruler's staff from, depart from between his feet until, until the time the tribute comes to him. And to him will be the obedience of the peoples. Another way you could read that is the obedience of the nations. So Judah is the one singled out as of the lineage of Abraham, of the lineage of Isaac, of the lineage of Jacob. And through Jacob, Judah, he will be the one who is the ruler over all the earth. Now, this is not something that gets stifled now for until the time of David. Moses is someone who we think about as not necessarily carrying, a, carrying this promise along. But if you'll turn with me to Deuteronomy 17, I would beg to differ. I think Moses keeps this motif of kingship going. And you'll see that almost overtly in Deuteronomy 17, when Moses says, there will be a king who will rule over Israel, who will be a certain kind of way. And this is Deuteronomy 17, and I'll be reading from verse 14. Remember the history of the people, they're about to walk into the promised land. They've just been delivered from the Egyptians. They've been walking around in the desert. And verse 14 when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it, so once they have the land that Abram was promised, you will say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Now, typically we pause here and we say, and that was sinful. But look at verse 15. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Well, what's this king supposed to be like? He will be one from among your brothers that you will set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, he must not acquire for himself many horses or cause the people to return to Egypt to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you will never return that way again. Verse 17, he will not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart would turn away. He will not acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Well, verse 18 tells us something even more special. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he will write for himself in a book, the copy of his law, approved by all the Levitical priests that they may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he not turn aside the commandment, either to the right or to the left, that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children. So the Israelites are told that they will be a people. Judah is told that he will rule, that the scepter won't depart from him. And then Moses tells us that there will be a king who will rule over the Israelites that must meet this kind of standard, namely that he must love God's law and be obedient to it. Well, then we meet King David, who is the typified king, who's better than Saul. And to David uh, is promised an everlasting kingdom, much like what was promised to Judah. And this is in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, this is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. 
And this is David towards the end of his rule. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom will be, put, will be made sure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever. Now, if you are just reading, uh, and you're just reading word for word, you would say, okay, well, that's not exactly a repetition of the promise to Judah, except that for Judah, he's told the scepter will never depart from him. And now David, who is of the line of Judah, is told that from his line, the throne will never depart, which is another way to say he will, never, he will rule forever over his people, namely in the promised land. What's interesting about this promise, people debate, is this conditional or unconditional? Can you break this promise? And what's interesting about this is when the, when the two kingdoms of Israel split and the northern kingdom appoints a king who's not from the line of Judah, not from the line of David, and the southern kingdom does appoint a king from the line of David, the southern kingdom not only lasts longer, it has a, a higher percentage of faithful kings. Now, it's not a great track record, but they at least have some faithful kings to show for their, their work. And they only have people from David's line who rule over them. It's one dynasty the whole time for the southern kingdom, whereas the northern kingdom has something like 20 or 30 dynasties that take, take rulership over that course of time. Ultimately, the kings are disobedient. They're led, they're, they're led into exile, and that takes us to, well, what we're studying in Daniel. And so the people of God are, are waiting for this king who was promised to them, who is going to come from the lineage of David. And this takes us to the prophetic hope. So there's all this, this anticipatory promise through the narrations in scripture, but this takes us to the prophetic hope. What are we looking for in a king? What's this king supposed to be like? And there's uh, four texts in particular I'd, I'd like to, to look at. One is Psalm 2. There's going to be two in Isaiah and one in Micah. So Psalm 2 first. And Psalm 2, uh, we often forget the Psalms are not only written at a certain point in history, but they're also sung as part of the liturgical calendar of the Israelites. And so if you want to know what is the Israelite hope for redemption, this is what the Israelite hope looks like. The nations rage against God's people. And this is uh, verse 1 of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, his anointed is not necessarily saying there's one Messiah who's coming. But God's anointed is anyone whom God has chosen to be the anointed ambassador for his people, which, as we've already seen, is through the lineage of Judah, through the house of David. This is the anointed of God. And they go against the Lord, against his anointed. So they go against God and against God's king, and they say this, let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords. They don't want to be ruled by this king. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. When he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me... I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. That's, I have put my king in Jerusalem, over my holy mountain, over my people. Verse 7, I will tell the decree that the Lord said to me, and this is the king talking, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So the Lord talking to the king says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, meaning I will make the nations obedient to you. They will be your inheritance and the ends of the earth will be your possession. So now we see that expansion of the Adam promise. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Now he says to the king, I will give you the earth as a possession, as an inheritance. Verse 9, you will break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. 
Okay, so if that's the, the outcome for those who are against the king, what about those who are for the king? Verse 10, now therefore, because you know this, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. Okay, what does it look like to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling? You need to kiss the son. You need to kiss his appointed king. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and lest you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So this is the, the messianic hope of the Jewish people, that there will be a king who will be anointed, who will be the inheritance of all the nations of the earth. And this takes us then to the prophets. So this is the Psalms, what the Israelites sing. But this takes us to Isaiah chapter 9. And this is a text that is often read during the Advent season, and very appropriately so. But I think it's helpful to have the context that we just examined before we read it, because Isaiah 9 uh, answers this anticipation very well. So the, the, the preceding context of this prophecy from verse 2 to verse 5 is basically the people of Israel are under a burden, under a kind of oppression, but they have this kind of hope that is unbroken. And the hope is unbroken, why? Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Now that means he will be the, he will be the one who the government is founded on. The government will have to stand on his authority. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So he's not only a counselor, but he's also the Mighty God, He's also the everlasting father. He's also the prince of peace. Now look at this language and, and see the similarity to the Davidic promise. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from now and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So the, the, the answered expectation in Isaiah's day while the people are disobeying is that God will put a king over his people because of his zeal to save his people, and this king will rule with an everlasting reign over a people. And then if you'll just turn one chapter over to Isaiah 11, Isaiah tells us more overtly the same kind of language. It's on the throne of David, but in verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. So Jesse, remember, is David's father, and a branch from his roots which will bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding and of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be to fear the Lord. He will not judge what his eyes see or decide disputes with the ears of his hear, with, with the ears of his hear, with the ears that he hears, but with the righteousness of God he will judge the poor, and he will decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So this king will be one much like Deuteronomy 17, who uh, delights in God's law, who obeys the Lord, who will not judge with what he sees, but he will be anointed by God with an understanding and a spirit of wisdom. So this is Isaiah's anticipation. There's going to be this king. This is what he's going to be like. Much like Moses, this is a king. This is what he'll be like. And that takes us to Micah chapter 5. Micah is one of those minor prophets, which means he's towards the back of the Old Testament. But we, we'll be, just look, be looking at a couple of verses in Micah that have this same anticipatory longing for a king. Micah 5, uh, I'll start reading in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrath, which is his Bethlehem, the people, 
who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. So Bethlehem is of the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and the rest of his brothers will return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure now and be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So this king will rule over his brothers, and he will be the peace of the people. And this takes us to the final text that I want to read right before we go into uh, singing about these truths. And this is in Luke chapter 1, or sorry, Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. I'll give you a moment to turn there. So consider all this Old Testament anticipation of a king who's promised to rule through the line of David, through the line of Jesse. And now you have a context of what does it look like for this king to rule over his people. And this takes us squarely to the New Testament, which is impossible to understand outside of the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, you get Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And Luke says this, In the same region there were shepherds in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an, with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and singing, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But But Mary treasured all these things up in her heart, pondering them. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God. For, they had, for all that they had seen and all had, that had been told to them. So you have this long Old Testament anticipation of what is the announcement of the child going to be like? What is the Savior going to be like? Well, he's going to be a Savior from the line of David, and he will be Christ, he will be the Messiah, and he will be the Lord. And he is the one who the, the angels point to, and they say, this is the child who is born to you. And when, so when we worship at Advent, we don't just worship God incarnate in the abstract, but God incarnate in the specific, in Christ Jesus, born of a virgin, who is to be the Savior and King over all the earth. Because how does he save his people? Well, he saves them by dying for them, but also by being the one who is the ambassador and protector of them, right? If, they're, if they take refuge in him, they're safe. And so his lordship, swearing allegiance to Jesus, is what it means to be under his rule in, in a, a follower of him, right? In the New Testament, we get language like disciple, But in the Old Testament, this would be just as easily understood, right? The king is over you, so you're obedient to the king. Whatever he says goes, right? He is the ruler, he is the ruling authority of God over over the nation. And that's what we, when we look at the Advent season, this is what we're anticipating. This is what we're looking forward to. And the reason we do this is, one, because it already happened. It's a wonderful reminder of truth. But also because as we look at the, let's say, long-expected hope of the Christ coming in his Advent, we also look for the long-expected hope of him returning in his final consummation of this kingdom, which we're told in the scripture is going to take place, and it's really the season of time which we find ourselves in now. So Advent is both a time of remembering what promises have taken place, and with hope looking forward to the promises which are yet to take place, 
uh, in Christ Jesus in his second coming, where he will make a perfect peace occur on this earth. So with that being said, let's go to the Lord in prayer and then sing together in worship. Father, I thank you for your scriptures, your promise which uh, is, is found throughout all the pages of your narrative, the story which is so beautifully told about your coming son, who is to be the ruler and rightful king over your people. Lord, we thank you that in your pleasure, in your infinite wisdom, you have desired to make us, a people who were far off from you, a part of your people. That you have, in your infinite wisdom, said this is a fitting way for the gospel to go forth, that it would be uh, a blessing to all the nations. That through Abraham and through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, and ultimately, that is Christ, who is the perfect fulfillment of all that is promised to Abraham. Lord, we thank you for that truth, and we pray even now as we go to your uh, go to your throne in praise, that you would allow us to release our hearts from whatever earthly trappings might distract us, and would you allow us to lose our tongues to sing your praise. We pray this all in your name. Amen.